you have your Bibles, you could turn to 1 Thessalonians. Well, this last week was full of excitement at the Major's household. It was Adelaide's birthday party. And when my daughter gets excited about something, she starts doing this. She starts hopping, and she could hardly contain her emotions. So you can imagine waiting for this birthday party came with a lot of joyful anticipation. We thought about, okay, what, what friends are we going to have come? And she even, she, she called me when I was at work to plan out what games we were going to play. She went with her mom to pick out her birthday cake. Everything was driven by her birthday party. And what's interesting is the book of Thessalonians says that we should do that exact thing. Not about a birthday party, but about the return of Jesus Christ. Waiting for the return of Jesus, live out God's call on your life to be holy. That's the message of 1 Thessalonians. Waiting for the return of Jesus, live out God's call on your life to be holy. Now, when you think about the second coming, sometimes you think, you know what, I don't need to give much thought to that. That's kind of for the nerds who have charts like this. Charts of Bible prophecy. I'm pre-mill. I'm amill. It's just for the nerds who like to study charts. And yes, this is my book, and I am a nerd. Or you think of prophecy conferences where you're trying to determine, okay, who's the next Antichrist? Is it this president or is it the next one? Or, or who's it going to be? And you have posters of dragons or cheesy movies. So oftentimes we neglect the second coming of Christ because we associate it with those things. However, when we do that, we cut the main root of motivation for holiness in the New Testament. We cut the main root of our motivation for holiness in the New Testament. Scripture says Christ's return is a massively important truth for our lives. There are 318 references to the second coming of Christ in the New Testament. One out of every 13 verses references the second coming of Christ. Now compare that to the Lord's Supper, which is only mentioned three or four times in the whole New Testament. Or you think about baptism. Baptism is mentioned 19 times in seven epistles, but in the other 14 epistles, it's not mentioned at all. Compare that again to the Lord's second coming. One in every 10 verses in the epistles reference the second coming of Christ. This is a massively important doctrine for our lives. Nearly every moral commandment in the New Testament is tied to the second coming. So, I'm excited for us to study 1 Thessalonians. This book will be good medicine for our hearts as we often neglect and don't think about the second coming of Christ. Think about it. When is the last time you came alongside a brother or sister and encouraged them with the second coming of Jesus? That should mark our lives. So the main point 
in Thessalonians is waiting for the return of Jesus. Live out God's call on your life to be holy. So let, let's get an overview. Let's do a flyover of 1 Thessalonians. We're about to jump into it verse by verse, but we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. To properly interpret a book of the Bible, you want to know what the main themes are. And the main themes in Thessalonians are holiness and the second coming of Christ. And so we're going to interpret the whole of this book in light of that major theme. So turn to chapter 1 and look at verses 9 through 10. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So already here we see there's a focus on waiting for the return of Jesus. Now a little background about this church. You'll remember when Paul had his Macedonian call. Well, Thessalonica was in Macedonia and he and Silas preached in this port city, and they had some success. It says there are leading women, there are Gentiles, and a few Jews who came to the faith. But they also received a lot of persecution, to the point that they had to skip town pretty quickly. And they had to leave this new baby church pretty early on in their discipleship. So you can imagine... Paul, a spiritual father, worrying about this church. He had just left the city because of persecution, and now this church was left alone. How would they fare? So what Paul does is he sends Timothy and wants to get a report from him. And Timothy comes back while Paul is in Corinth and gives them wonderful news. Just like the Thessalonians had started their faith, they were continuing in the faith. In fact, their faith was so exceptional that it says Paul and the apostles didn't even have to brag on them wherever they went. In the whole Macedonian area, everyone was bragging about the Thessalonians' faith. It was the talk of the town. So this was no ordinary church, no ordinary conversion. God was doing an amazing work in their life. Now, what was it that empowered them to live that way? How could they continue following Jesus in such persecution? Verse 10 gives us the answer. They turned from God, or they, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So in Paul's mind, a key aspect of the Christian life is waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. And that's the very thing that empowered this church to live for Jesus. So waiting for the return of Jesus, we are called to live out God's command for holiness. Now look, go to chapter 2. Turn to chapter 2 and go to verses 19 through 20. What is it that is driving Paul's ministry? What keeps Paul going? Man, talk about a tough ministry, right? 
He goes from city to city. He's always being persecuted. Churches are always thinking that he's illegitimate, and so he has to defend himself. What keeps Paul going? Well, look, look at verses 19 through 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's remarkable. Joyfully anticipating presenting his faithful converts in holiness to Jesus at his second coming is what drives Paul. Now, how often do you think about that? When you're parenting your seven-year-old, and she's getting grouchy, and she's treating you with disrespect, how often do you think, you know what? I want to present this little girl to Jesus Christ one day in holiness. Therefore, I'm going to respond with patience. We don't often think that way, right? We often think more like, just get out of her. But God wants the second coming of Christ to so impact our hearts that we are responding to people, we are ministering to people in light of presenting them before Christ holy. So do we serve and obey for immediate fruit that we can count in our ministry, in our parenting, in loving one another? Or do we serve because of anticipated joy at the coming of Christ? So waiting for the return of Jesus we should help others live out God's call on their life to be holy. Waiting for the return of Jesus, we are called to help others live out God's call on their life to be holy. Turn to chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Let's continue our flyover of this book. 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So what is Paul praying for? He's praying for holiness in the light of Christ's second coming. He wants this church to be ready for when Jesus comes back. And that's what's driving him to pray for their holiness. Now this is so encouraging that Paul is doing this. Because it shows us that ultimately holiness comes from God. Paul, twice in this book, stops and just prays, which is remarkable. He's giving doctrine. He's giving exhortations. But he stops twice to pray because he knows that holiness, our practical holiness, day in and day out, comes from God alone. So he goes to God alone for holiness. Now, he prays that the believers may abound in love for one another. So when we think, what is holiness? Don't just think of all the things we shouldn't do. Don't smoke. Don't go to bad movies. We are to not just love each other, but abound in love for one another. That's the holiness that will prepare us to meet Christ when he comes back. 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness by abounding in love for one another. So, how are we doing there? How do we relate with other believers in life in light of Christ's coming? Do we allow bitterness to creep in? Do we give people the cold shoulder? Do we stay on the fringes, kind of licking our wounds that no one's pursuing us? That will not get us ready well for the coming of Christ. When Christ comes back, he's going to look at all of your relationships. And he will determine if you are abounding in love or if you're mainly thinking about yourself. So waiting for the return of Jesus, live out God's call on your life to be holy by abounding in love for other believers. Abounding in love. Let's turn to chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Let me pause there just for a second. That's so encouraging, isn't it? God is not an all-or-nothing God. Either you're perfect or you're trash. Either you are perfectly obeying or I don't want any of it. It's all filthy rags. No. God counts the little victories in our life of sanctification. He sees the long-term growth in our lives. And he does not despise that. That's so encouraging. Paul says, just as you are doing... So he recognizes the grace of God in the church, in the Thessalonians. He knows that God's at work in them, but also notice that doesn't lead to complacency. I mean, if any church could have been complacent, it could have been this one. Well, we've suffered for Christ and we've stayed faithful. I think we're doing pretty good. I'm not sure we need to do much more, Paul. Let's just wait for Jesus to come back. No. Paul doesn't despise the growth they have, but he doesn't also allow them to become complacent. And that's a model for us, that we should neither rest in complacently nor despair of the grace of God that sometimes works very slowly in our life. So, end of parenthesis, back to chapter, or, uh, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I loved that verse when I was in college because I was so enamored. All right, what's God's will for my life with marriage? What's God's will for my life with seminary? What's God's will for my life? And, and I got so bogged down by that, I forgot that, you know what God's will for you is? Your sanctification. I'll take care of the rest. Seek first God's kingdom, and he will lead you in the path you need to go. So 
When someone, when you're struggling is, what's God's will for my life? Just go to this verse, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now let me pause there again. You think, Paul, okay, I could, I could see obeying this verse to be pure sexually. In the first century, they didn't have pornography. It was such a clean culture. It actually wasn't. If you would go to the local bathhouse, which many people did, think about going to the YMCA. It'd be a place where you, you can get warm spring water and slaves would scrape your sweat off and, and you'd sit in hot pools for health. And then you'd go have sex with a the prostitute. There is always prostitutes just ready at the local YMCA, ready to do their thing. So when Paul said this, he wasn't saying it into this pure society that just would have been easy to be sexually pure. He was saying it into a society very much like ours. And the encouraging thing is, it must be possible. If God commands sexual purity, it must be possible through his grace. And then in verse 6, he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Do you feel the urgency here from the Apostle? Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you to do this. This is an urgent matter. During Christmas, I got a call. I was in my office here. It was a few days before Christmas. And my wife called because our daughter, Adelaide, had a fever of 105.9. It was scary. She ended up having pneumonia. And we didn't know what was going to happen. We, we were very afraid. So Amy urgently said, you need to come home we got to go to the ER right now. Could you imagine if at that moment I would have said, okay, 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 I got some stuff to do. Um, I got to finish my work here. I really was planning on watching Netflix tonight. We'll take her to the ER tomorrow. I would not be treating it as an urgent matter, right? But so often we do that with holiness. I'll obey God tomorrow. Let me get the job I want. Let me get my career in order. And then I'll prioritize seeking first the kingdom. Let me take care of some stuff before I really dive into this community. We don't treat holiness like the urgent matter that scripture calls for. Now, where do we see the second coming of Jesus in these verses? Where do we see the second coming of Jesus? We see it in verse 6. The Lord Jesus Christ is an avenger in all these things. Now, when I say avenger, what do you think? Captain America, Hulk, 
Why do we love those movies? We love it because, man, they're going to come and they're going to clean up. They're going to take evil and bash it. And they're going to do it in a really cool way. There's something in us that loves justice with power behind it. Well, that's a picture of what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. First time he came as a lamb, he will come back as a lion. Jesus is the only true and ultimate avenger, not Hulk. So what is this first teaching? It's teaching that those who ignore Jesus' command regarding sex will face the wrath of Jesus when he returns. Those who ignore Jesus' commands regarding sex will face the wrath of Jesus when he returns. There's no other way to take this. We know he's not talking about believers here because Jesus will never bring vengeance against a believer. He's already done that on the cross. So what he's saying to this church is, look, if you are giving yourself to sexual immorality, if that's driving your life, you should expect the vengeance of Jesus when he comes back. You are proving that you don't really know Christ. So Paul is giving us a warning. Now, why will the Lord avenge for these things? Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has given us a calling. God has redeemed us that we might be holy. It's a serious call. It's not an optional call. It's not believe and then be holy if you feel like it. You've probably seen the commercials for the Marines. The few, the proud. Whenever I see those commercials, I think, oh man, I kind of want to be a Marine. You just feel awesome. I was just telling someone the other day, though, that I hate camping. I hate it. I don't even know how I would do it. I don't know how to put up a tent. I don't know anything about it. If, if I brought my family in the woods, we'd never come back. <laughs> and so we've told Dana and Artina, look, if we ever go camping, you got to do the work because we'll die. We have no survival skills. So I don't think I could ever be a Marine, but there's something in me that desires it because of the way they... they the way they show how this calling to be a Marine is such a weighty thing. The few, the proud, and then you see the guy holding up the sword. And what they're doing is saying, this is a high calling. This is a lofty calling. Now picture one of those Marines on the battlefield with this high calling to protect his family, to protect his country. The sergeant tells him something and he's like, nah. That's, that's kind of optional. I'm a Marine, but I'm going to go back in the tent, if that's what they stay in, and I'm going to play video games. I know ISIS is out there, but nah. He would totally trivialize the calling of being a Marine. That's what we do when we make holiness optional in our life. We make God's call on our life trivial to follow him. In fact, Ignoring God's call to holiness is ignoring God. 
And that's what makes it so serious. Look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. I'm reading a book right now called The Hole in Our Holiness. I would highly recommend it. It's called The Hole in Our Holiness, and it's written by Kevin DeYoung. This is, this is what he says about holiness in our churches today. He says, among conservative Christians, there is sometimes the mistaken notion that if we're truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperatives or moral exertion. We are so eager not to confuse indicatives, what God has done, and imperatives, what we should do, that we get leery of letting biblical commands lead uncomfortably to the conviction of sin. We're scared of words like diligence, effort, and duty. Pastors don't know how to preach the good news in their sermons and still strongly exhort churchgoers to cleanse themselves from every defilement of body and spirit. We know legalism, which is salvation by law-keeping, and antinomianism, which is salvation without the need for law-keeping. They're both wrong, but antinomianism feels like a safer danger. So he's saying, in our modern church, the danger is to think that the gospel wipes away any moral exhortation in Scripture, as if they're not really serious. You must be holy, but Jesus died, so you don't really have to be. That's not how the gospel works. So, what do we learn from these verses? Waiting for the return of Jesus as an avenger, warn others living in sin, so they will live out God's call in their life to be holy. That's why we practice church discipline, because we love people. We don't want anyone to meet Christ as an avenger. And so we warn them in love. Now turn to chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, a little context. Paul didn't have a ton of time to disciple the Thessalonians. We're not completely sure how long he was there. Acts 17 talks about him being there. But we don't know if he was there for a few weeks or for a few months. But clearly, some, some of the uh, theology they had wasn't fully formed yet. And so they were worrying about people in their congregation who knew the Lord but had died because Jesus hadn't returned yet. They thought, oh, shoot. Bob died last week, but Jesus didn't come back, so he must perish. And so they had a faulty understanding of the second coming of Christ. So this is why Paul then picks up in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he's giving them comfort here that Jesus is big enough to raise people out of the grave and save them. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul gives an explanation of what the second coming of Christ will be, and that's supposed to be the content of encouragement that we have for one another. Do you see that in verse 18? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These words about the second coming of Jesus should be on our lips as we encourage one another. My wife was talking to Anna Kelcote this week, a dear friend of ours who lost their son in a tragic accident this summer. And she was living this. She said, my, my wife asked how she was doing, and she said, you know, the only thing I'm waiting for right now is the coming of Jesus. That's all I can hope for right now. That's why we have this doctrine, is so that we can encourage one another that the pain and the brokenness will one day be over, that Christ will come back. So Jubilee, encourage one another with the truth of Jesus' return. Encourage one another with the truth of Jesus' return. And this will enable us to live out God's call on our life to be holy, even in suffering. Turn to chapter 5. We're in the last chapter now. You'll notice in such a short book how many times Paul is talking about explaining the second coming of Jesus. In Paul's mind, this is huge. And what we see in verses 1 through 11 is that thinking about living in light of Christ's return enables us to be spiritually alert. It enables us to be spiritually alert. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But... You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And here he goes again. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Again, this is the content the second coming of Jesus ought to be the content of our encouragement for one another. And the specific encouragement in these verses is stay awake. Stay awake. I read a book called What Your iPhone is Doing to You, or 12 Ways Your iPhone is Changing You. 
And one of the things he said was so perceptive. He said, we're so distracted by our screens, we hardly have any ability to think about eternal things. We want to stay awake to eternal truths, to the second coming of Jesus. Now, Jesus taught this too, right? You remember the parable of the ten virgins? Now, in this day, the young women, the bridesmaids, were supposed to meet the bridegroom, who would then fetch his bride from her home and lead the whole procession back to his father's house for the feast. Now, to be a bridesmaid, much like today, was a great honor. So these five virgins who didn't have their lamps ready totally neglected a high calling. They were supposed to be ready. Young women would have nightmares about not being ready for this procession. And yet these five women were not ready. And so Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. He's making the point that it is essential to be ready when he comes back. We need to be alert and not to fall asleep. So, waiting for the return of Jesus, stay spiritually alert in order to live out God's call on your life to be holy. And finally, we'll look at verses 23 and 24. Again, this is just giving us an overview, a thematic overview, of the two themes of holiness and the second coming of Jesus, so that when we interpret Thessalonians in the next weeks and next months, we'll be able to put it in this overarching theme. Now this is the most encouraging verse, I think, in the whole book. It's another prayer. Again, Paul knows that the things he's exhorting the Thessalonians to do can't come from them. It has to come from God. And again, he's praying for holiness in light of the second coming of Jesus. And then he says something that should make your feet dance. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify is just another way of saying make holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Now, whole spirit, soul, and body, that's just a rhetorical way to say all of you. God wants all of you. Don't quarantine any aspect of your life from God's presence and from his direction. Our sinful hearts do this all the time. Well, I evangelize a lot, so if I look at some porn, not a big deal. Or I'm a, I'm a great parent, so... My next-door neighbors, I'm not going to really care about evangelizing. We kind of quarantine God from certain areas of our life, and then we take pride in the areas where we're doing well. God wants all of us, every part of us. And then, verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That is really good news. When you hear about God's call to holiness, it's easy to be filled with fear that this all depends on me. What if I'm not holy? We start to lose our assurance of salvation. But this says, if you're truly in Christ, 
that will never happen because of the faithfulness of God. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day your holiness rests ultimately on the faithfulness of God and God's promises, he will surely do it. That is great ballast in our ship, isn't it? That it's ultimately God's faithfulness that keeps us for Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. So I think what Paul is saying in this book is, is take, take holiness seriously. He will come back. And at that moment, your job, all the things that you pursue in this life won't matter. What will matter is your holiness. How will you be found before the Lord? And... In that, we run to God because only he can do it. So we should hear a sermon like this and not say, all right, got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to give my sin a licking. We should be serious with our sin and not use the gospel as an excuse to not be serious about it. But that doesn't mean our dependence changes from being on God to us. It's all dependent on God. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So, Jubilee, waiting for the return of Jesus, trust God's faithfulness will keep you living out his call on your life to be holy. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be holy? Not because we're earning anything, but because we want to be a beautiful bride for Christ when he returns. Because we want to be able to celebrate his love when he returns. God, you're, you're clear in this book that this can only come from you. It's, we depend on your faithfulness alone. So would you do it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.